When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Rich Little and you're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Robertson along with a guest Steve Bender. Steve Bender, Emmy Award winning producer and director of such iconic films and variety specials as Lucy in London, The Tammy Show, and the 1968 Elvis Comeback Special. Steve is also the co-author, along with Mary Beth Leadman, of Fade Up 26, the movers and shakers of variety televisions. Fade Up 26 is available both in hardcover and as an ebook through Kendall Hunt Publishing. You can find Fade Up 26 at Amazon.com and wherever books are sold online. You mentioned the improv session, the jam session, which is one of the most iconic parts of the special, as you just said. And just from what I from what I know about Elvis, pr- prior to that, you know, when he performed live, I mean, he I mean, he pretty much you know kept to himself. He didn't engage himself with others. He didn't engage himself with the audience. But he started doing that. In the seven, I mean, that's from what I know about when he performed live in the seventies. He did that all the time, you know, with with audience. Do you think he took what he learned as a result from working with you and worked that into his live act later? Well, fortunately for me and everybody else throughout the world, uh, Elvis made the decision himself when we filmed the the or videotape the special at NBC in Burbank. He decided he wanted to live there uh, while from day one until we finished it and uh, not spend the hour or two driving back and forth to his home in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And that was fortuitous because what happened is he had all this spare time on his hands after rehearsals and tapings and so forth, and he'd go into his what became his dressing room living quarters. Uh, there was a piano in there, and he'd sit there with, uh, you know, whoever happened to be hanging out at the, at the uh, television station, uh, late at night, etc., and he'd go into his dressing room uh, and his living quarters and start jamming until sometimes three, four in the morning, uh, and we'd all pile in there. And and uh, what I was able to to eventually capture uh, on tape was something that he was doing every single day, uh, living at NBC. And I I insisted that you know I. I, I knew it was like looking through a keyhole. It's something you're not supposed to be looking <laughs> to see. This was, ma- this was magic, and it was something I said, I've got to get this on tape. And when I went to Colonel Parker and told him what my plan was, he he really became infuriated and said, absolutely not. No cameras in the dressing room. Uh, you can't even bring audio tape in there and so forth. And uh, 
So I just kept hounding him while I was shooting the, the formatted show with all the big production numbers and so forth. And I guess in a moment of weakness or whatever, uh, he finally came to me and said, okay, this is what I'll let you do. I'll let you recreate it on stage if you want to, but I won't guarantee it'll make the air. It may not get into the show if I don't like it. So I jumped on that and uh, and uh, immediately, even though my budget was already blown by that time, <laughs> uh, you know, we've got to do this. And, uh, and then... You know, it goes on because the colonel tried to sabotage it the, the, the time that I actually did it. Uh, you know, he was hoping to, uh, he, he ended up with it's another story where he got all the tickets to the, to the improv jam sessions and uh, promising that he was going to fly an airplane in from Memphis with all these bouffant, blonde, hairdo, <laughs> blue-eyed girls who were fanatical fans of Elvis. And it was all baloney. He never had that intention. And as a result, I was driving out of the uh, lot at NBC uh, the day before we were to tape this. And one of the guards uh, said, hey, Steve, do you need any tickets for tomorrow's event with Elvis? And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and there, you know, was a stack of the tickets. And I said, where'd you get these? And he said, oh, some ball-headed guy came by and handed them to me and said, just pass them out as people are driving in and out of the lot at NBC. And uh, so the morning of the taping, uh, you know, the I had ordered extra security and, and uh, the public relations people and, and uh, the pages and so forth to be uh, welcoming the crowd because I thought they'd be lined up around the, the, the blocks in Burbank at NBC. And I got there first thing in the morning of the taping, and the head of the uh, uh, NBC guest relations came to me and said, we're in deep trouble. We've only got about 10 people standing out in line here. And so we spent all morning long, Bones, myself, a lot of the crew and so forth, uh, calling people, asking them to come see Elvis taping. <laughs> and uh, we even sent a person to, there was a iconic kind of drive-in restaurant in California at the time called Bob's Big Boy. Mm -hmm. They had that very famous uh, uh, statue out in front of uh, their drive-in with uh, with Bob with the uh, curly hair and... And, uh, and the freckles and, and a big hamburger. Exactly. Yeah, there's, there's... We went there and asked people who were actually in their cars eating lunch or <laughs> a late breakfast, asking them to come over to NBC to watch Elvis. And we kind of, you know, pulled this group together because before then we'd invited nobody and we're told by Colonel Parker, since he had all the tickets, that we couldn't even have any of the uh, NBC executives or the crew or their girlfriends or wives or anybody there. It was He was in total control, which unfortunately I gave him. And, uh, so we were lucky to even get it. And then when I was ready to do it, Elvis kind of got cold feet and wanted to back out. And he called me to the, uh, while we had the audience being warmed up for him, uh, we had a local uh, radio DJ there, and we also had uh, Bob Finkel talking to the audience. And I could hear this conversation going on on stage, and I got a call that I had to meet Elvis in the, in the makeup room. And I went in there, and, and uh, there were a group of people in there aside from, from Elvis, and he asked everybody to leave for a few minutes so he could meet with me alone. So everybody left, and he said, Steve, I can't do it. I said, what do you mean you can't do it? 
He said, I don't remember anything that happened in the dressing room. I don't remember any of the songs I sang. I don't remember any of the stories we told or anything. So I grabbed a piece of 8 by 10 uh, paper with a pencil and a blank sheet and wrote down what I remembered, the songs going up, going down, and, and uh, you know, all the old songs and so forth, and some of the stories he told about being at the Pan Pacific Auditorium in California where the Vice Squad was there mm -hmm. making sure he wasn't doing any vulgar things below the waist and so <laughs> forth. And uh, so it was a case of where when I went to the control room and I said, Elvis, I haven't asked you to do anything that you didn't want to do on this special. This is one time where you've got to go out there. I don't care if you just say hello to the audience, goodbye to the audience, I don't have anything to say or sing but you've got to get out there. And I left. I turned my back on him. I walked out of the makeup room, went up to the control room, and uh, getting ready to roll the, the videotape, not knowing if Elvis was going to go out there or not. I, I didn't get a definitive answer from him. And when I went up in the control booth, the only time I knew he came back was when one of the cameramen showed me his monitor, and uh, there was Elvis climbing up the uh, stage steps, and getting ready to perform and it was it was amazing because once he was up there he forgot about cameras mm -hmm. he forgot about television specials he forgot about everything he got so into it i almost had to get the hook to get him off <laughs> we, did two, we did two hours of it yeah but, uh, you know so it was pretty fantastic and that to me was the real gold and the the magic of the special i mean he was back. I mean, he didn't have to prove himself to anybody and all the predicts. The amazing thing about Elvis is I don't know any other performer in the world that could have gone on stage cold after being absent from performing in front of an audience for a, a good maybe 10 years mm -hmm. when he started doing all those movies, etc., and was up to speed in, in five minutes. I mean... For me, watching the special back, and I've seen it obviously several times, mm -hmm. what was magic for me was watching a man rediscover himself. Yeah. And that was it. You could see it in his face, his body language. I mean, all of a sudden he was back to being a kid again and doing what he loved to do. You're listening to a conversation that originally aired in March 2017 with Steve Bender. Steve Bender, producer and director of the iconic 1968 Elvis Comeback Special. Tuesday, August 16th marks the 45th anniversary of the death of Elvis Presley. We are dedicating this week's program to the life and music of the king. In our previous segment, we talked about the improv session, Steve. Uh, another iconic moment is the final song performed in the special, If I Can Dream. Tell us the story about that. Well, I wanted the American public, the world for that matter, to really know who Elvis was, not just the performer. Mm -hmm. And I had never seen him uh, other than under a completely controlled environment, like making movies. Uh, you know, if he did television, it was very uh, predictable what he was going to be doing. Uh, and I... I I, because I had spent so much time with him and with our little behind-the-scenes family, we got to really know him. We were together when uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. Uh, we happened to be rehearsing at my offices at the time and, and heard this big commotion in one of the other offices where the television was on. So we walked into the room, and uh, it, it, he had, uh, Kennedy had just been assassinated, 
and uh, we spent all night talking about the assassinations of Martin Luther King, of uh, John Kennedy, and so forth and so on. And so it was really a case of, you know, I knew Elvis, aside from his great sense of humor, there was a real human person with a lot of feeling and humanity in him. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I just come off this incident of of basic racism uh, on the Petula Clark Harry Belafonte special where somebody objected to a black and a white person uh, touching. And uh, it was a case of where... In the Elvis special, we were a United Nations uh, production. I mean, we had a Puerto Rican choreographer, a black choreographer. We had a a totally mixed ethnic uh, dance company, extras, actors, and so forth. The Blossoms, three uh, great black uh, background singers who were known as the best uh, studio singers uh, on the West Coast uh, and did so many, many hit records. And they were with him when he was doing his big gospel production number, et cetera. And I didn't see any uh, prejudice, racism, anything coming from Elvis. I just saw a compassionate human being who loved everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody loved him back. And uh, so it was really a case of uh, I wanted the public to, to get to know him in the closing song. The Colonel, all the while, was pressing for a Christmas song. (laughs) I said, everybody's going to do a Christmas song Mm -hmm. at the end of their show in December. I don't want to do that with Elvis. So secretly, I told Billy Goldenberg, our musical director, and Earl Brown, our vocal uh, director, uh, to come up with a song, an original song, incorporating all the feelings we had about Elvis. And, uh, you know, what happened was uh, I got a call uh, one evening, a few days later, from uh, Earl Brown saying, uh, Steve, I think we nailed it. And so could you meet us at the studio really early and, and uh, we'll play it for you. So I met him first thing in the morning, uh, got up really early, uh, drove out to Burbank, and we went into Elvis's dressing room before uh, Elvis had, had gone to the bathroom or something. He was not <laughs> in his dressing room. Yeah. Nobody was there. And so uh, they sat down at the piano, took out a lead sheet with... Uh, if I Can Dream, Billy Goldenberg, Earl Brown, uh, lyrics and music, and played it for Elvis. And, Elvis, oh, and, and played it for me. Mm-hmm. And then I loved it, I approved it. And then when Elvis came in, I said, Elvis, uh, I think we've got the closing song. So we go into the, in, by the piano, and uh, Earl, with a great voice, sings the lyrics. Billy plays a phenomenal piano, and he played the, the music behind Earl. They sang it, and I loved it. And so when Elvis was there, I said, Elvis, you got to hear this song. I think this is the closing song. And basically, you know, if I can dream of a better world where everybody gets along and so forth, the lyrics said what Elvis was kind of, you know, emoting mm-hmm. through the entire rehearsal and production. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Elvis heard it, and he said, uh, play it again. And uh, I could hear the colonel who had arrived by that time with, all the RCA people and his entourage, uh, and they were in the other room uh, where the piano wasn't, and uh, I could hear the colonel saying, what's Bender doing? <laughs> never going to, over my dead body, is he ever going to get Elvis to sing this song? Yeah. And then uh, Elvis made them play it and sing it for about three or four times in a row, which was his style when yeah. he heard something new. He was, he was absorbing it. Then, then he looked at me and said, I like it. I'll do it. Door bursts open. In comes 
Colonel Parker and the head of his publishing company with contracts <laughs> to sign, yeah. giving away their rights to the publishing, which I guess was pretty normal in the Elvis mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. And uh, so before they signed anything, Billy Goldenberg, who I'll never forget this, yeah. who's still one of my best friends, said, uh, you know, I've got to be really honest, Steve, I can't have my name on this. Earl wrote the words and the music by himself, and he took an eraser and erased his name off the lead sheet. That cost Billy Goldenberg hundreds of thousands of dollars in what he would have gotten as residuals and, and royalties uh, for the song. And uh, the, the amazing thing about If I Can Dream is that Elvis never, ever, after the 68 special, performed it again. It was so special to him, and uh, so I, I, you know, to this day I get goosebumps when I hear it. Uh, going through the yeah. uh, the experience with him, and and honestly, uh, when we went to do the uh, orchestra track for it, uh, Elvis uh, had, had uh, uh, we just finished a big recording session with all the musicians, and there were some. I think by the time we finished the special, we had like forty two musicians. Elvis had never sung with anything larger than a rhythm section in his life mm-hmm. and, and insisted when I brought the orchestra in that I send them all home if he didn't like Billy's arrangements and so forth. But, you know, once the downbeat happened, he loved it. In fact, when he went to Vegas, he got a bigger orchestra. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's, that's, another, that's another thing, you know, that he took from his experience working with you and and, 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 and he kind of incorporated it into uh, his performances Throughout the seventies, I love the story. I, I, I love that end note story about Billy erasing his name from the credits. I know Billy Goldenberg's work from a, I mean, he scored a lot of film and television throughout the seventies and eighties, and sure uh, did. many of my favorite shows. So I've always liked him as an artist. I was not aware that he had. I, I, I was not aware that he had removed himself from the credit. I respect him more as an artist and as a person as a result of that story, Steve. Well, I appreciate it, and I, I, he well deserves it. He's really, you know, he's really a special human being. And uh, I, I used to go to some uh, recording sessions when we were doing Petula Clark. Uh, he and Michelle Legrand would play together, do a dual pianos, mm-hmm. and uh, that was really exciting. Wow! Yeah. Of, you know, just for fun. I mean, yeah. they weren't being paid, or they weren't, uh, but they just. Uh, Petula was good friends with Michelle. She introduced Billy to him, and the two of them hit it off. And next thing you know, you know they're they're playing piano together. It was fantastic. <laughs> Steve Bender, producer and director of the 1968 Elvis comeback special from a conversation that originally aired in March 2017 here on TV Confidential. Tuesday, August 16, 2022 marks the 45th anniversary of the death of. Elvis Presley. Steve's books include Fade Up 26, The Movers and Shakers of Variety Television and Oral History of Variety Television as told by 26 variety show producers and directors. Fade Up 26, The Movers and Shakers of Variety Television by Steve Bender and Mary Beth Liebman is available wherever books are sold through Kendall Hunt Publishing and Amazon.com. The next edition of TV Confidential will air next week Hope you join us for that. In the meantime, a reminder that you can enjoy Chuck Carter's latest music performance video for free on YouTube by typing Chuck Carter Music, Music, Music on YouTube. That's Robert Chabaff, Tony Figueroa, Donna Allen, Bill Grace, and Greg Airbar. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy. 
stay safe. We'll talk to you next time on TV Confidential. MPI Media Group, in association with the UCLA Film and Television Archive, have just released the first two seasons of The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet for the first time ever on digital platforms and viewing on demand. The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet, one of the longest-running sitcoms in TV history, airing on ABC for 14 seasons, 1952 through 1966 with 435 episodes produced. It is also one of the most beloved family sitcoms from the golden age of television. The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet, seasons one and two, restored by MPI from the original 35mm picture and sound elements in association with the UCLA Film and Television Archive, which preserves the elements on behalf of the Nelson family. The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet, seasons one and two, available now on DVD and viewing on demand from MPI Media Group. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.